Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, September 24, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Neil Katyal, who has orally argued 39 cases before the Supreme Court, discusses his life and career with fellow legal scholar Akhil Reed Amar. Well, uh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, for another season of extraordinary events at this extraordinary institution. It's such an honor to be with you all. I wish we could have picked a, um, a, a more eventful day to, uh, <laughs> to, to have a conversation with Neil Katyal, who's been beating the drum for impeachment for lo, these many months. Uh, and we're going to talk about that, I suspect, at the end, um, because actually we are meeting at a particular historic moment in time on a particularly historic day. My plan is to get you involved in the conversation a little earlier than otherwise. So cards, you're going to uh, write your questions on cards. I'll filter them and, and post some of them. But we're going to begin, since this is the New York Historical Society. Um, one of the amazing things about New York is it's where the great-grandchildren of all the peoples of the world um, live together. Um, and, and that's not true of most other even great cities of, of the world. So I want to begin. Um, um, Neil, actually, one of the highlights of my life was when he actually introduced me to, to Lynn uh, Miranda and, and, and <laughs> Vanessa Nadal. So in New York, you can be your own man. The story of coming to New York is the story of a great um, lawyer named Hamilton. You know, it's a story of, uh, of the Katyal family. About, so I, I want to begin with the Katyal family and, and when your family comes to America. Tell that story for us, please. Okay, great. So first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, I had the privilege of speaking, or really being in a kill seat and interviewing Larry Tribe a little while ago, and I had such a great time, and John Monsky, one of the trustees, is a dear friend, so it's great to be back. I'm not a New Yorker. I'm a Chicago guy, um, but, um, uh, and I was born in Chicago. My parents were uh, born in India. They came over uh, the year before I was born. And really, they came here for one simple reason. They thought they could land on its shores and be treated fairly. Not perfectly, but fairly, and they thought their children would be. And for most of my life, that's been my experience about this country. That's what I think makes it so powerful, e pluribus unum, out of many come one. Um, and where did they came straight to Chicago? They flew. They, they came on a boat. What, well, my, my dad actually, there? my dad took a boat from England. Um, he had difficulty getting a job in England, and uh, so he took a boat to Newport News, Virginia, and because uh, he heard there were jobs in Chicago, but the cheapest way to get there at the time in '62 was to take a boat. So he takes the steamer, and he gets off 1962, Virginia. And he, uh, in, the, uh, in the station, the boat station, um, uh, the harbor, is two bathrooms, colored and white. And he didn't know which one to use, so he figured the whites was probably better, so he went in that one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, it's remarkable. I mean, many of you were alive at that, at that moment. And for all of the despair that I think we feel, or at least some of us feel looking at what's happening with our current occupant of the White House, I think that fact is we've made a lot of progress. 
Okay, so you're born in 63? I was born in 70. Oh, I'm sorry. So you said they were only here a year oh, before you My were parents born. came together the year before. They, they came, they, my, dad, my parents came separately, 62 for my dad, uh, 66 for my mom. And they kept on going back to India to try and have, like, meet people for an arranged marriage their parents would introduce. My mom really wanted nothing to do with this. She didn't want to get married at all. She'd hide under the bed and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, she met my dad um, at a kind of interview thing. And my dad was the only one of the 500 people who she interviewed who said, who asked her if she had any questions for him. And so, like, I like that guy. <laughs> Okay, so now um, you're growing up in Chicago. Um, tell us a little bit about that before we talk about college. Well, I was a shy kid. I was, um, uh, I really wasn't particularly good at school. Um, um, I, I, went I don't to, believe that. I, I, I wasn't. I mean, I was like a B student, basically. I was a year younger than everyone else. I was five when I went into first grade because my mom want, had to go back to work, effectively. And so, like, I didn't know how to read when everyone else did. And um, so, uh, you know, really, I was fine, but nothing, nothing good, not, not a particularly great student. But then um, my uncle told me when I was going to high school, he's like, you know, I think you should try the debate team. That was like the weirdest thing for a guy who's like shy and like basically a science person. But I wasn't particularly good at anything else. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I realized doing it pretty early on by the, by the second semester of my freshman year, I was 13, and I was able to actually do pretty well because it was one thing where if I put the effort in, it would actually go better. And by the time I was a sophomore, I was flying around the country 15 weekends uh, to debate tournaments. And by my junior year, I was starting to win national titles. And so that really changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, and you know, there have been a few pivotal moments. Um, that was the first um, in high school. And then in college, there were a couple of things. And then in law school, there was one, and it was you. Yeah, it was we'll you. talk about that. So that was, and, and, and right back at you for me, too. Um, but. Um, since you mentioned being in my seat and interviewing the great Larry Tribe, really the, the dean of American constitutional law professors, um, he was national debate champ or something like that. There's an interesting correlation, Neil. Uh, some of the people who are uh, preeminent in especially constitutional law are actually, and, and I'm not in, in this category, um, uh, uh, but they're, they were either national or, uh, I mean, uh, college or, or, or high school Debate champs. Yeah, so the, Give the, us the, names. The, the type of debate that I did, policy debate, Larry Tribe was really um, one of the founders of the, the style that is now being done today. He won the national tournament in 1961. Um, and today, you know, of the five people I routinely argue against in the Supreme Court, the kind of five top advocates, three are former debaters who I used to debate against in high school and college. So this has been going on for 30 years. <laughs> who are they? Uh, so Tom Goldstein, Lisa Blatt, Paul Clement, um, you know, are the three that I'm thinking of. Um, but others, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was also a debater, uh, Justice Sotomayor. Um, so there are others um, as well who've had this. And then law professors? Irwin, sure. Chemerinsky. Irwin is one, yeah. So there's a bunch. Um, and, you know, Louis I think... Kaplow? I think so, um, but uh, you know there is a there is a training that comes from that. Um, but for me, it's more than training. It was just like literally, I had a trajectory that was going to be like 
you know, my parents, like there's only one profession, medicine. And in fact, my mom, when I was a senior in high school, she said, if I apply to one of those combined six-year medical programs where you go to college and medical school and you're guaranteed to go to medical school, she's like, I'll give you my car. Just apply. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll apply, you know? So I mean, I applied and then I got in, which was a problem because then she cried and cried when I said no. Um, but, um, but yeah. And that's the experience of many um, parents when their uh, son gets into Dartmouth. They just, just, just you know, sort of weeping, you know, the despair that must have overcome. You know, Tell us about um, your experience at Dartmouth because you kept doing debate there. Right. So, you know, I didn't even know what the Ivy League was. I mean, I, when I was a senior in high school, I, I had no idea. But I did go to Dartmouth for, uh, to, to study debate for the summer. Um, and uh, so I wound up going there. And again, I was not a particularly great student. Um, but I did have a couple of professors who really took me under their wing there. And I'm so grateful to them because they taught me to write and taught me to think. And debate was helpful in teaching quick thinking, powerful rhetoric. Um, but precision was not actually that highly valued in debate or the quality of your sources or the quality of your you know, kind of deep logic. Um, it's still a bit more of a game. And so I, you know, I, I started that there and, uh, you know, and, and then in law school even more. So kidding aside, um, and, and we're both parents, and as you can see, we're, we're, we're actually friends. Um, uh, um, we've been talking a little bit about colleges of late. You're, my, my kids are just, have just entered college and, and your oldest is, is just about to start. And one thing that we've been talking about is how Dartmouth actually has a certain ideological diversity to it that's not true at some of the other schools, which are actually pretty far to the left. Yeah, I'm very worried about this. Um, uh, you know, I, I think students at, you know, at my school and the others that I'm looking at are getting increasingly so sensitive they can't handle debate and disagreement. And you know, you can call it the safe spaces movement or whatever. And I understand that people come from a variety of different uh, backgrounds and there's a variety of things that are hurtful, but the real world is a heck of a lot worse than the academy. And, you know, for someone like me, I teach criminal law and, I, and constitutional law, but in teaching criminal law, I teach sex assault and rape every year. And um, I think that there actually wind up being, and I think my students will say, the most... Uh, powerful classes, the ones that stay with people the longest and teach them the most. Um, but they're the hardest classes to teach. But I think if we can do it in the law schools on something that is so difficult, boy, I think we should be able to debate other things that are a lot easier. And so I am very, very concerned about the, the way in which a lot of modern universities are going on the kind of stifling of debate, the idea that, you know, you got to think a certain way and the like because you know there's a big world out there and people do think differently and we need to persuade them we can't just like laugh at them or call them you know whatever ists that we want and that's why i'm picking up on the point that from an early age i think i think actually debate trains you very well to hear arguments on the other side and know how you might be able to respond to them i think going to a school in a purple state um, and, uh, and it's not quite just totally urban, you know, uh, helped in this regard, along with debate. You're not just with 
folks on one side of the aisle. Because we've been talking about this in connection yeah. with, you know, your own right. son. I and, think, and, I think you, know. you know, I'm a big believer in affirmative action in the university section, a set, a setting, and indeed, Akhil and I have written some, some work on yeah, that together. together. But I think if you really believe that, that idea that racial diversity matters or gender diversity matters, so too does political diversity. So, like, on my team... Um, of 15 Supreme Court lawyers. I mean, I think I run kind of the most elite at your law country firm. at my law firm. Um, you know, half of them are conservative. And that's really important because if I just get a bunch of liberals, they're really smart and they can somewhat project the way conservatives will think, but I'd rather have it directly from them. And that helps sharpen my thinking. And so absolutely, I think this kind of tendency to only surround yourself with other people who think like you is deeply damaging to yourself and your own growth, but also to democracy. So I want to ask you one more thing before we meet and when you finally get to law school. Um, you had one other interesting extracurricular activity in, in college. You were a chauffeur. <laughs> well, um, I, when I was a freshman, I was in 1987, I got there, and that was a presidential election year, and a young guy named Al Gore was running, and uh, I was really taken with him, because from debate, the topic that year was arms control, and there was one person in the Senate who was just a maven at arms control, nuclear deterrence, understanding mutually assured destruction and everything, and all the different weapon systems, and that was Al Gore, so I was super impressed with him, um, and so I literally got him coffee, drove him around, um, you know, whatever. he's trying to win the New Hampshire primary. Right, because it's New Hampshire in 1988, and so... Um, and again, that's like one of those things which I had no, I didn't do it for any instrumental reason. But then I go to law school, and in 1992, I start in law school. And in November, there's an election, and Gore is now the vice president. And um, we, uh, I sent a letter to, while Quayle was still vice president, uh, on December 1, we were allowed to apply for summer jobs. And so I sent a letter to Quayle's office saying, would you please give this to Gore's team? If he wants an unpaid intern, I'll do it. And... Um, uh, they were really nice, actually called me back and said, look, we have no way of doing this during transition. We recommend that you send a letter on January 20th, which I did. Um, and on January 22nd, the White, the, the, uh, the Gore's uh, counsel called me and said, come to Washington. I did. And um, that really actually opened a lot of doors for me that I didn't anticipate. I worked there for the summer. I started opening mail. But then by the end, we nominated Justice Ginsburg, and I got to prep Gore, uh, and even moot Justice Ginsburg, um, uh, then Judge Ginsburg. Um, and, uh, and that opened up a, a set of relationships so that when I was clerking for Justice Breyer, I was going to go teach at Georgetown, and, and uh, Gore's lawyer called me up and said, hey, you know, we're going to nominate this person to be Deputy Attorney General. Do you want to work for him when you're done with your clerkship? I said, what is Deputy Attorney General? This is before Rod, you know, of course, so nobody knew. And they said, oh, it's the number two person at the Justice Department. His name's Eric Holder. I said, never heard of him. Um, so, um, so, you know. That's, I remember you were a law student. Gore's the vice president. You're working with me. I, we haven't, I haven't quite told you that part of the story yet, but, but he will very shortly. Um, and Gore is coming. He's the sitting vice president. He's coming to Connecticut for some event. And he's got like a couple of hours. Does he call Joe Lieberman, who will, whom we will later ask to be his running mate, the senator from Connecticut? No, he calls this pipsqueak and says, listen, I got a couple of hours. Can you have lunch with me or something? He's like, like, what? You know, so, but this was all in part because Dartmouth opened up uh -huh. this interesting possibility yeah. for, for you. Okay, so now you're at law school and you end up at Yale. Tell us about law school. Yeah, so I was probably the last person admitted to my law school class, um, you know, and... Uh, um, <laughs> 
close to it, I think. Um, so, um, but I did on my very first day. I was assigned to his class. Yeah. And, no, no, uh, no one would take it voluntarily. Yeah, <laughs> it's the most popular class at Yale College right now. But, but, um, but in any event, um, I, 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 uh, I went in on the first day. And, you know, the, the debate taught me how to research and, 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 um, and think through issues. And it, it, he had posted some questions. And, uh, and they were pretty hard questions. And I basically stayed up most of the night to answer them. And so he asked the first question, and I look around, nobody's raising their hand, and so I raise my hand, and then second and third question, and so on, and you know, and so. No one had ever, ever gotten past the first three questions, and he got like eight in a row, okay? <laughs> and then, and seriously, everyone, and this has never happened to me uh, uh, since, and it never happened before, and his classmates, I'm, I'm actually seeing sort of wet spots developing in their, their pants because cause he, you know, they didn't know the answers to any of this. And then I said, how did you get all of those answers? And he actually explained very calmly, well, you, you actually asked some questions. Here's what I looked up for this one. Here's what I looked up for that one. It actually, when, when you explained it, there was a, uh, you know, this wasn't because you were superhuman. It's because you had listened very carefully to the, to the questions that I posted and figured out how you would go about answering them. Right. And that's, that is the debate training. That is exactly, you know, you just, you listen closely, you research like hell, and then you come up with the answer. And it is exactly what I do at the Supreme Court. I don't think I'm some, like, Cicero-gifted orator or anything like that, but I will research a question to death. I will assemble the very best team of people to look at it and give me advice from every perspective and then I'll relentlessly prepare. We'll talk about that and, and how I do it. But um, but that to, you know, it's not you're not born this way. You know, to do to do these kinds of things. Okay, so you're at law school and you haven't even gotten gotten to the end of law school. Anything else you want to tell us about law school? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay, so <laughs> then you because you now litigate before the court. We're talking about the court. Um, you work for one judge. And then you work for a justice. Tell us about being a clerk for a justice, yeah, the court so, that you're now so, arguing before. So I had the privilege of clerking for the same judge, now justice, that, that Akil did, Stephen Breyer. And um, there's no way I, I could have gotten the job without his support. But more to the point, I couldn't have actually done the job well because what a great teacher like Akil does is he teaches you precision. And like I used to read so fast in debate. Like you'd read fast out loud, you'd research quickly, you know, and it was rough and shoddy a little bit. And Akil's whole approach was you read a case out loud, actually. You know, if there's a text in the Constitution or something, you read it out loud because it forces you to really listen to it and think about the interrelationships one phrase and another. Why they use the same word twice? Does it mean the same thing? How is it structured? How is the sentence structured? All this kind of stuff is essential to practicing law at the highest levels or clerking at the court um, to, in order to be a successful clerk. Um, and so having that training was incredibly helpful for me. Um, and you know, so I was able to both research quickly from my debate time, but then research accurately and characterize things well. Because in the law, I think, particularly in the Supreme Court, once you blow your credibility, you mm. never get it back. Yeah. Like there was a guy about seven, eight years ago who argued a case and we mooted him at Georgetown. And one of the people who was mooting him, uh, I think it was Steve Vladek, said, you can't say that. That's absolutely wrong. And the guy went and said that at the Supreme Court in the argument anyway, just blew off the advice. 
And the justices are really smart. I mean, these are nine very hardworking, smart people. They found out that he had basically misrepresented. They ruled against him. And then that guy got another case the next year. And Justice Kennedy, I think, I think it was Justice Kennedy, said, oh, why? He asked a question, and then the guy answered. And then Justice Kennedy said, oh, well, why should we believe you this time? So now you've finished your Briar clerkship. What next? Um, so uh, I was going to go straight to teaching. Um, and I really wanted to teach because, frankly, people like Akil, I, I shouldn't have had all the great opportunities I had, but I had them because of teachers. And so I wanted to just do that back. Um, and so I took a job at Georgetown, but then that call from the Gore team came. And so I went over to the Justice Department um, for two years. And um, uh, my first big substantive task was um, something you all know something about, the special counsel regulations. The Independent Counsel Act was going, was going to lapse. Never um, heard of them. And, uh, um, my very first day at the Justice Department was the day that Ken Starr's deputy told Eric Holder we wanted to wire Linda Tripp. Um, and so I was just happened to be there at a historic time. And um, Ms. Reno put me in charge of this Janet working Reno, group. the attorney general. Um, put me in charge of this working group uh, to think about, do we want to keep the Independent Counsel Act? Do we want to kill it? If we want to kill it, what should it look like? And the, the structure of that act, which is in law of Congress, would grandfather the existing investigation. So we weren't like sitting there thinking, let's kill the act and then it'll kill the Ken Starr investigation. He was going to be grandfathered no matter what. And that actually allowed us to actually try and think about what's the right thing to do, which is kind of rare in government. Um, but you know, there was going to be a new president, the, uh, you know, Clinton in, in his second term, so he's term limited. So both sides had an incentive to just really try and figure out what's the right thing to do. And that's how we wrote the special counsel regulations. I did a variety of other things um, as well, but that was the main thing. The special counsel statute did indeed lapse. And Janet Reno testified uh, before the Senate. Were you involved in any of that? So she, um, she first testified in its favor in 1992, or 19, excuse me, 1993. I, I was still your student at that point. Um, but then when uh, she came back, when I, when I came into the department, yes, I, I wrote her testimony seeking the lapse of the independent counsel statute and the replacement with the special counsel regulation. Because you and I agree with Justice Scalia's constitutional concerns expressed in Morrison versus Olson. Correct. So, I mean, uh, and this is a great example. There's so much of a tendency right now in law, in politics, to think that justices are political. And... Um, you know, there, there, there are certain cases that are really hard. I had the privilege of working on Bush versus Gore. I, I still feel that was a political decision. Um, but, That's uh, but, you know, Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison versus Olson is a really good example of how if you really believe in the text and constitutional principles, you can get to a certain result. It's not motivated by trying to protect your guy or anything else. And I suspect that Justice Scalia's dissent, he's right, he gets on the court in 1986. And this case comes in 1988, the Constitutionality of the Independent Counsel Act. All seven of his colleagues, one justice recused, all seven say, oh, it's obviously constitutional. He's a lone guy, writes his opinion just for himself. And it's so right. I mean, you read that thing, and it's like, it's scary, right? Um, OK. So um, uh, tell us, uh, since we promised them some account of, of your experience in the court, and Louise correctly said that you've litigated more cases than any person of color in history. 
um, uh, before the Supreme Court, 39, I think, and passing Thurgood Marshall. Tell us about your first case on the court, because I thought you were this Georgetown professor. Yeah, and that's what I thought I was going to be, too. Um, and particularly after Bush versus Gore, where I didn't argue it, I was just a co-counsel. Helping very tribe. Right, exactly. But I was, um, I was very demoralized with the court. I, I actually didn't go into the building for three and a half years um, because I was so saddened by what had happened. And um, so I thought I was going to be a professor and, and teach my students and so on. Um, and then the horrific attacks on September 11th happened, and I was looking around for something to do. Um, I started volunteering for some first responder stuff. Um, and then the president issued this military trial order at Guantanamo Bay. Which and president is this? The president Bush, um, W. And two months after the 9-11 attacks. And I, when I first read it, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like on the spoof White House website, like The Onion or something like that, because the president was saying, I, the president, can set up an entire trial system from scratch. I can handpick the prosecutors, handpick the defense attorneys, handpick the judges, handpick the court of appeals judges, write all of the rules for the trial, define all of the punishments, which he said were the death penalty, say if the defendants had any rights. He said zero constitutional rights. And the very last lines of the order said the federal courts have no business reviewing what I'm doing at Guantanamo Bay. No writ of habeas corpus. Now, I am a big believer in presidential power, but that, I thought, went too far. And so I did. I was a law professor, so I you know, did what law professors do. I wrote a law review article with Larry Tribe, and we raced it to print. Um, nobody read it. I'm not even sure I read it. Um, uh, I testified on the Hill. Nobody cared. And then I, you know, and I was like, wow, well, what am I going to do? And I realized I have this other tool in my toolkit. I'm a lawyer. I could sue the president. So I don't know how to do that. I'm a, like, you know, I went to Yale. They don't teach you that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, um, but I start working with the team of students, and, uh, and we write a complaint. But then I had to get it to someone at Guantanamo. You have to prove, you know, you can't just, it's not academic. It's a legal case. So um, I had a friend at the Pentagon, and we basically got a letter to a prisoner at Guantanamo, uh, Bin Laden's driver. And, um, and his name is? Salem Hamdan. And Salam Hamdan signed the piece of paper authorizing the lawsuit to be filed, and off we were. And um, so I, um, I argued the case in the trial court. I've been trying to meet Mr. Hamdan once I had the piece of paper, and the Pentagon wouldn't let me in the Justice Department. They said I didn't have the security clearances, and I'm like, I said on the covert action committee, I got more clearances than you heard of. And they looked me up, and they're like, oh, yeah, you do. Because you had worked directly for Holder right. under Jim when I was Aquino. Right, and it was within five years, so I was all cleared. And, um, and you had to meet, meet various security clearances for clerking um, on the Court of no, Appeals no, and the no, no, Supreme no, Court? No, this is all way much off. Higher. Yeah, this is all way much higher. But so they looked me up. They're like, okay, you do, but you don't have need to know. There's two levels in security clearance world to compartmentalize information. And... And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, you're a law professor. These are academic arguments about separation of powers, the Geneva Conventions, and the like. So you don't have to actually go and, you know, meet your client. In fact, you've already argued the case in the trial court and won. So you don't have to go. And again, I'm so deferential to the government. I was like, oh, maybe they're right. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. I'm not a law professor. I'm a lawyer. This is his case. It's not my case. 
So I called the Justice Department, the Solicitor General back, and I said, hey, can I have that in writing that uh, I can't go, I don't have a need to know? And then they let me go to Gitmo because they knew I was going to give it to the New York Times. Um, <laughs> so they made it hard for me. To and you will later become acting Solicitor General. Yes. Okay, so, so that you called up the then Solicitor General. Yeah. Okay. So, they don't even know yet what the Solicitor General is. Solicitor General is the top courtroom lawyer for the government. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the person who argues at the Supreme Court, but also controls all the lower court litigation. Any famous Solicitor Generals other than you? Um, a lot more history? famous than me. Thurgood Marshall, uh, you know, is one. Robert Jackson's another. You know, Elena Kagan, um, another. So, um, so I go down to Gitmo. They make it really hard. They make it a 30-hour trip. And, um, and uh, I, I get to meet my client, and he kicks everyone out of the room. I have a bunch of students and stuff, and he says, I want to just talk to you. So, okay. so I think he's going to yell at me because he's been there for 10 months in solitary confinement, hasn't seen another human face. Food has passed him through a slot. And uh, he smiles and says, why are you doing this? Your last client was Al Gore. Why are you doing this? <laughs> And I remember this so vividly. I, you know, I remember like I paused for a long time, like a minute, like maybe like 40 seconds. And I remember thinking in my head, like, you should stay a law professor because you can't be a lawyer. The guy asks you a simple question and you don't have an answer. And then like five more seconds goes by in my head and I think, well, maybe it's okay because when you ask Justice Ginsburg a question, she'll pause for as long as a minute before answering. So maybe I'm okay. And then like another five seconds goes by in my head and I think, well, that doesn't matter. He doesn't know who the hell Justice Ginsburg is. <laughs> um, but then I told him this, and it's almost verbatim. I said to him, you know, my parents came here from India not because of the quality of its soil or its sports teams. They came here because they could land on its shores and be treated fairly. Not perfectly, but fairly. That's the way my life had always been. But when the president issued this Guantanamo order, for the first time in our history, we've literally never done it. Through all our wars, we never said it only applies, this new trial system only applies to the 7 billion foreigners and the 12 million green card holders like my parents. We've always treated people equally. Here the president was saying, you could be an American who's accused of doing the worst thing imaginable, detonating a weapon of mass destruction. You get the Cadillac version of justice, the civilian trial. But if you are one of the green card holders and accused of something minor, you get the beat up Chevy version of justice. You get the uh, Guantanamo. And I told him that. And that's what always powered me through the case. And I was, we, when we, you know, we lost it in the Court of Appeals uh, on July 12, 2005. There were six issues in the case. I lost each one three different ways. So there were 18 different losses in 15 pages. And the person who was the most prominent person on that three-judge court was a guy named John Roberts. Um, that was July 12th. On July 15th, John Roberts was nominated to become Associate Justice of the Supreme Court by the defendant in the case, President Bush. Um, and then, two weeks later, he was elevated to become the Chief Justice of the United States. Um, and uh, Ed worked for him. I have tremendous, tremendous respect for him, and we can talk about that. Um, but... I was asking the Supreme Court to overrule John Roberts' most important decision um, and their new chief justice. So 
We are, you file in the Supreme Court something called a petition for certiorari. That's a request to hear the case. There are like 10,000 requests filed every year. They hear about 65 cases a year. So it's like easier to get into Yale than it is to get your case heard at the Supreme Court. And so everything was against us, but they agreed to hear the case. And I remember my first reaction was, I can't argue this thing. I don't need someone good to argue it. And I called up Ken Starr, and he wanted to do it. But then his law firm won't let him. And I called up another prominent advocate, Miguel Estrada. And uh, he, had, he said he wanted to do it, but he had to check one thing. And it turned out he had signed a brief on the other side, so he couldn't. Um, so uh, I wound up doing it. And um, uh, when I decided to do it, um, and this is still a little bit my argument preparation strategy, but I said, I have to do everything humanly possible to be good and to convince the court. And so I took out a legal pad and wrote down all the people, the names of all the people around the country who scare me the most. And Elena Kagan was on it and people like that. And I called them all up and I said, will you moot me? Can I practice? My very first one moot court was at Harvard. Larry Tribe was there. And Larry, at the end of it, said, you know, Neil, you seem very small at the podium. And I understood that. I was very deferential. And I was not forceful at all. And um, so I didn't know what to do about that. And one of my co-counsels said, well, I got the guy for you. I said, who is it? And he's like, well, he's not a lawyer. He's an acting coach. But you know, you might as well try it, because you need to do something. So. That was my attitude. I try it. This guy comes in. He's got like a billowy shirt and like a bolo tie. And like he could read my body language in a second. I'm like, this is going to suck. And uh, <laughs> but he says to me, I know you seem skeptical, but let's just try it. Tell me your argument. So I go down and I get my legal pad. And I'm like, here's my argument. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm giving you my argument. He said, your argument's not your legal pad. Your argument's your argument. Tell me your argument. Put down your pad. So I put down the pad. And then I start talking, and I realize, wow, it's much more persuasive. I'm actually having a conversation. I'm interacting. I'm not just preaching at you. I'm talking to you and having a conversation about what's right. So I relax into it, and it's so much more powerful. And then he says, now do it holding my hand. I'm like, whoa, this is weird. But, <laughs> but so powerful, because what argument is, is actually connection. It's human connection. And when you're holding someone's hand, you're connecting with them. So then he had me move the hand away after 10 minutes. And he said, practice this in your mind as if you're holding my hand. You're obviously not. And that's what I did when I went into the Supreme Court. And I was terrified. And Justice Scalia was on the court. And I knew, and he did. He gave it to me really hard. It was my first Supreme Court argument. It was my opponent, the Solicitor General's 35th Supreme Court argument. But it went well. And we won. And that, to me, says something profound about America. The idea that this guy, the lowest of the low, bin Laden's driver, could bring a case not just against anyone, but the world's most powerful man, the president of the United States. And he doesn't bring it in like some rinky-dink traffic court. He brings in the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court of the United States, and he wins. That is remarkable about this country. In many other countries, this driver would have been shot for bringing this case. And more to the point for me, his lawyer would have been. Um, <laughs> but that is what makes this country so great, to use a phrase.
Now, how many other cases do you um, uh, try at the Supreme Court? Because you're still a Georgetown professor. You still got your day job um, before re-entering the government and now actually as the government's lawyer rather than someone suing the government. Right. So I only had one other case at the Supreme Court the year after the, the Gitmo one. And I remember I was more nervous for that than anything because I already won once. I was like, I remember standing up at the podium and thinking, why am I doing this? I'm undefeated. What am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) So I just had those two arguments um, when I went to the Solicitor General's office versus the principal deputy, the number two for Elena Kagan, who had no arguments to, you know, so both of us were relatively inexperienced, whereas the rest of that office, it's 20 lawyers, very elite. You know, there's one person who's had 140 arguments now at the court. Um, and so um, real wealth of experience in that office. Okay, so uh, Elena Kagan is Barack Obama's solicitor general and you're Elena's number two. Correct. Okay, and uh, you didn't know Elena that well before. No, not really. I taught at Harvard for a year and we had become friends um, and we were in the Clinton administration together, but we, we didn't know each other particularly well. Okay, and how many cases did you argue in capacity as the number two person? Well, in the total in the Solicitor General's office over the two and a half years as number two and then acting as number one, I argued 13 more cases. Okay, because she's, uh, she goes on to a different position. Yeah, yeah something. Okay. So <laughs> she, she, when she uh, uh, joins the Supreme Court, you're now the acting Solicitor General of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to wear um, a, f- uh, a fun outfit. Yeah, you wear a morning suit, um, just like the old British uh, you know, wedding tradition, um, and loved wearing the morning suit. Just loved it, <laughs> striped pants, the whole thing. It's great. And your first sentence uh, is, as Solicitor General, what do you get to say? Well, uh, that you represent the United States. The United well, States. Yeah, you never say that. I mean, they know that. So, no, you don't say that. Okay, um, but, but you have a special color for your briefs. We do. You know. It's a gray brief. Um, and um, yeah. It's different so you, from every other party that, that litigates before the Supreme Court. Yeah, and you are considered the 10th Justice. You are very much an advisor to the court. Um, you, you have a special responsibility of trust with that with the court. Um, you will often sometimes summarize things that are executive branch decisions and you have to make them totally accurate because the, the justices won't see them. Sometimes you have to represent things about very highly classified materials um, and the other side can't even see them. So there is a real kind of delicate responsibility. And you know, when I was in the office, I'd gone back and dug up the history of the Japanese internment. And I think some of you heard these cases as Korematsu and Hirabayashi. And in law school, we're generally taught that was the court at its worst moment. But it turned out it wasn't totally the court's fault. It was the Solicitor General at the time, Charles Fahey, who lied to the court and hid all of this information about how unnecessary the Japanese internment was. And so I exposed all of that um, while I was running the office. Um, and we're going to start to segue to your um, uh, uh, questions. Um, uh, after you uh, uh, finish your stint as uh, solicitor, acting Solicitor General of the United States, um, you go into a private practice in a big way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I run the practice that John Roberts used to run. Um, and uh, um, and uh, and it, for the first, uh, your firm is it's called Hogan Levels, um, yeah, and um, 
Uh, and so I've been in doing. In case they that. ever need a lawyer. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then separately, the day after the election, um, I founded with um, some Silicon Valley people at Georgetown the Institute for Constitutional Accountability and Protection. And most of what we do is sue Trump. Um, There's a lot of work. We're, we're, we're going to get to some of those um, uh, questions. Um, uh, um, so, uh, um, but just to remind the rest of you, John Roberts uh, uh, had been a government lawyer, um, uh, left the, uh, very early on. He went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he was a young government lawyer, um, as Neil was at Winston. And then he became the chief um, um, Supreme Court uh, lawyer, appellate advocate at this great firm. And then he went, became a, a judge on the D.C. Circuit and, and chief justice. Right. So he's argued 30, he argued 39 cases, uh, same number as me, although I'll have some more this year. Um, but um, he, uh, I mean, you, know, you can listen to oral arguments, any oral argument. They're all online on a website called oyez.org, O-Y-E-Z.org. And um, uh, listen to any of them by him. I mean, he was extraordinary, extraordinary. And before my first probably 10 arguments, the night before, I would listen to one of his arguments just to understand how he pivoted, how he, one of the things that made him so good was he was relentlessly honest. And he'd come in and he'd say, start his argument by, the best argument by my friend on the other side is this. And he wouldn't caricature the argument. He'd actually say it in the strongest, best possible way, and then he'd answer it. And that's exactly when we were talking about that safe spaces stuff before. That's exactly the skill I'm worried is getting lost because we're allowing people to mischaracterize good arguments on both sides. There are good arguments. I'm not talking, I shouldn't use the word both sides because that has baggage. I don't mean that. But I do mean that there are often two sides to some of these controversies or three or ten. And we have to actually understand what it is is being said before we can try and answer it. Now, there are apparently a lot of questions. I have no idea why about impeachment. But before we get to that, um, just as our transition, just questions about the Supreme Court before we talk about the High Court of the Senate and all of that. Um, I'm going to bring some of them together. Are you worried about the future of the court? And is it more of a political body than a judicial one? Yeah, I am worried about it. I mean, um, you know, I've been worried about it for a long time um, because I think the concept of law is breaking down a little bit. And it's not just the court, but in general, people are viewing a lot of legal issues through a political lens. And someone like me believes that words actually have meaning, that there are texts, both the statutes and the Constitution, and that they do have certain meanings. And we should try and understand what those meanings are. And if we don't like those meanings, we change them through the processes laid out in our Constitution. And, um, uh, you know, there are, it's, there are a few cases every year that get a lot of attention and that look very highly politicized one way or the other. And I had the census case last year that obviously worked out for us as the challengers I represented, Speaker Pelosi. And that, the year before, I had the travel ban case, which didn't work so well, five to four against us. Um, both were seen as kind of political-ish um, cases. But a large number of the cases don't resolve that way, and they're really important. 
And you know, I think two years ago, the Supreme Court was unanimous about 60% of the time. Four years ago, unanimous 66% of the time. You'd have to go back to the year 1940 to find a similar rate of agreement. And I will say, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about the court is that most of you haven't seen it. You're not allowed to unless you travel down to Washington and you're lucky enough to get one of the 70 seats available to the public if you stand in line all night. And this is your court. And the idea that it's not televised, um, it, I mean, it's baffling to me. Um, and you just think about today, what happened this morning in the UK, and watching uh, Lady Hale render that decision, and the oral arguments all televised and on the web for people to see. I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't think we should be learning our lessons for democracy from the United Kingdom. But we are right now. And, um, um, and I really, um, you know, I, I really, you know, one thing that worries me about the future of the court is if they continue not to televise, um, because I think every American should see what's going on there. And actually, it's a pretty good success story. It's the only branch of government that works. Um, you go up there every time I argue, they're asking super hard, super good questions. And um, they come in with their A game. And you know, you may not like some of them politically or the decisions they've rendered, but these are nine extraordinarily smart people who are really trying to get it right. So we only have 12 minutes left, and I do have a bunch of impeachment questions, and I picked what I think are some of the strongest, and there's some very good John Roberts-like, here's the strongest questions for you. But just as we transition away from the Supreme Court, um, a series of questions, what are the qualities of a great justice? Um, What do you think about term limits for Supreme Court justices, and how can we lessen polarization on the court? Okay, so I think the most important quality for a justice is good listening and coming in and being willing to change your mind. Um, and the, part of the, I guess, maybe a word there is humility. Um, when I clerked for Justice Breyer, we had a, a really controversial case. And I felt incredibly strongly about it. And I really argued with him. And he said, you know, Neil, who am I to make that decision for the American people? I'm just one of nine people on the Supreme Court. And that really stuck with me. Um, you know, we, we don't have a country in which five people or nine people in Washington run our lives. We don't want that. Um, we want a democracy. And um, so to have some humility is, I think, important. At the same time, when there's a transgression of fundamental rights, whether it's reproductive justice, it's race, whatever, um, religion, freedom of religion, then toughness is also important. So um, humility, when it's needed, toughness in the rare case, I think those are, 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 are really important. Um, and I think also collegiality turns out to be important. I mean, Justice Scalia was a brilliant writer and thinker, but he couldn't command a majority in many cases because he just angered his colleagues and insulted them. And by contrast, I think watch Justice Kagan. I think in, you'll see in 10, 20 years, I think she will go down as one of the greater justices to have served, in part because she's good at building kind of consensus for her views. Um, that will all depend on who wins the next presidential election. And then with respect to term limits, um, I think uh, I like the idea of the, that's being proposed of 18-year terms. Um, I mean, it's such a weird thing to, you know, that... 
We have these justices who hang on until you know a president that, that the nominate of a party that nominated them keeps the seat and so on. It just gets weird and um, and uh, it's not the best way to to do things. So I would I wouldn't mind if we did move to eighteen year terms, but um, uh, you know that will probably require a constitutional amendment. Um, so I I actually as you see didn't make up that question. I'm glad you like the eighteen year idea. It was first proposed by Akhil Amar and Steve Calabresi, a conservative in the Washington Post. Um, 17 I didn't year, know that. I know you didn't. This is unrehearsed. And, but, and I didn't make up the term limits question 17 years ago, and you don't even need a constitutional amendment, but you'll have to read all about it in the Constitution today, which has that op-ed. Okay, we're moving to impeachment. We uh, are. Yes, we are. <laughs> And, the, and uh, these are really very impressive questions, and I can't go through them all. Here's one of the, the, I'm going to start off with one of the strongest, John Roberts, and this is what I would have asked you. You're a strong advocate of impeachment at this present. However, what's the value of impeachment when there's a, where there's a remote possibility of conviction and removal? Can't the upcoming election act as a referendum of, presidential, of the president's bad acts and behavior? No, I don't think that the election does, because elections are about all sorts of other things. <clears throat> Impeachment is about one thing, whether the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. And going back to the founding, what that quintessential example is about abuse of the public trust. And I don't actually care whether, I mean, I do care, but I, I don't think that, ma- that it's relevant what the Senate is going to do. I think that if you're in the House of Representatives, you take an oath to uphold the Constitution, and your most fundamental, your most sacred duty is if the president is acting in derogation of that, how do you sit on your hands and do nothing? How do you not make a record? How do you not make a record for your children? How do you look at yourself in the mirror and let this go on. Um, and I don't think it's political. And I actually, in some ways, the fact that the Senate may, first of all, I, I don't know what the Senate's going to do. I don't think any of us do. The fact that they sat on their hands for years doesn't mean that much because it's never been teed up to them as a question because the Democrats have sat on their hands in the House also. So I don't think we know actually what will happen um, once the proceedings get underway. But let's say you take the view that they're so partisan, they'll never care about the Constitution and so on. In some ways, that's a, that's a feature, it's not a bug, of the House moving toward impeachment because then they're actually just trying to set the record right and the president's saying, oh, you're trying to remove me? Well, no, you've got the Senate as your backstop. So um, I think it's incredibly important that we set down markers for what is acceptable behavior for the commander-in-chief. And the idea that if these allegations are true, we don't know if they are, but that he, that he took, well, up, you know, did not allow aid to Ukraine appropriated by Congress in the national interest because it served his private ends, or the idea that he was outsourcing, forget about quid pro quo, the idea that he's like outsourcing his corruption investigation to some private guy, Rudy Giuliani, to try and get a foreign government to get dirt on his opponent? I I mean, I can't think of something that's a more clear impeachable offense. So I think we have to do something. Um, 
there's so many great questions. You know, kudos to you all. I uh, can't do justice to them all. We only have six minutes left. Well, let's go a little. Like, let's go another five if we can. You know, so we can go over. Yeah, let's go. Let's go at least. Let's go five over. I know I have an yeah. eight o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Um, where did the idea that a sitting president cannot be indicted originate? Um, so, well, there, I mean, in, in modern terms, it's the Office of Legal Counsel, an elite part of, the, or some used to be elite part of the Justice Department, uh, <laughs> that uh, that uh, um, uh, has opined that both in 1973 and then again in 2000. And there are some pretty good reasons why. I mean, for one, the president, the Constitution commits the prosecution power, the federal prosecution power, to the president. So it's a little weird to think the president can prosecute himself. I mean, he should be able to control that. Harder question, what about states? The president doesn't control state prosecutors. So say, hypothetically, someone in New York wanted to indict the president. Those Office of Legal Counsel opinions don't directly control that. Um, uh, You've already talked about this just a little bit, but just um, let me get you on the record one more time. Um, What are the long-term consequences for our democracy if these impeachment proceedings fail to produce any results or hold the president to account? Um, And relatedly, if the House impeaches, must the Senate hold a trial? So, well, look, I mean, I think we're failing now by not, or have been until today, by not doing anything. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, oh, it's going to be worse if he's impeached and the Senate doesn't convict... I don't understand that argument because right now we're just letting him get away with it and commit constitutional atrocities. So I think we have to do it. And then, you know, you know my, I was always raised basically to say, you know, it's not about the end result. It's about are you doing the effort? Are you doing the things you're supposed to be doing? Are you doing your duty? And that to me is the case <clears throat> of impeachment. It's just as simple as you've taken that oath, you've got to do it. And... I, I can't really imagine things getting worse. There was another part to that question. Was um, uh, uh, well, I think you, I okay. think you, you answered. Um, well, um, must there be a trial oh. in the Senate if the House? I haven't. I actually haven't studied that. I'm sure you have. So you must have better, more, more developed views. I don't know if you yeah. want to say anything about that. Just um, the, the Senate could say no in various ways, and uh, um, and. Uh, so there you have it. But but they're going to have to. They're going to be held accountable, as we all, um, as you know, all officials right. are. I mean, they on, famously on didn't day. give Merrick Garland even a hearing, let alone a vote. Yeah. So you know, the, if you could do the, it for the, that. The Senate has lots of ways of doing nothing. They 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 actually have taken doing nothing to a, a very high art. There, in fact, you know, um, uh, uh, Paul Simon says, you know, fifty ways to leave your lover. There are at least fifty ways for the Senate to do nothing. I, I will say fact. though. You know, there's they're, a they're very of, good at that. There's a glimmer of hope today. Mitch McConnell agrees, and it's a unanimous resolution by the Senate today to release the whistleblower report to the Intelligence Committee. So, congratulations. Okay, now um, we've got three minutes left, and um, uh, only two questions, because I, you know, um, um, but this one, and, and, and one is just a little soft, so we'll leave that for the end, because it, it um, but this one connects um, everything that we, we've talked about for the last half hour. Um, do you have thoughts on Chief Justice Roberts potentially presiding over impeachment proceedings in the Senate? These are great questions, over impeachment proceedings in the Senate, and the impact it might have on the Supreme Court this term. 
Well, certainly I think that the court doesn't like to be in the political spotlight, particularly in an election year, but in any year. Um, but the chief is, I mean, he's such an institutionalist. I can't tell you in, in words like how much he cares about institutions. And so I think that if he is going to preside over a trial um, that takes place, he's going to do it with dignity and care and nonpartisanship, and he will project really the true best image of what the Supreme Court has been over our time. I mean, I think he, he studies Chief Justice John Marshall like you can't believe, um, and uh, who is our greatest Chief Justice. Um, and uh, um, he clerked for Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who presided over the last impeachment trial of a president. And I think he's going to study that very carefully, what went right, what went wrong, should, should we get to that trial. But um, I, I actually have a, a huge amount of confidence that if this does go to trial and he's presiding over it, it's going to be incredibly fair. One minute, and this is a softer question, but it's a sentimental one, and I'm not making any of these up. Do you, re and, and, and so they say, do either of you, but if you, so if you don't, I'll answer it, but do you recall the, 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 that question that was posed in your first class at Yale um, that you were telling us about? Sure, I mean, and, so I not only remember the question, I remember my answer, so, um, you know. I was hoping you, said, you would. You said, um, you know, the case is Roe versus Wade, why is the suit Roe's case against Wade? Why isn't it against the state of Texas? And that night, the night before the class, I went through the case book, really page by page, and at page 301 of the case book, there's a discussion. This is why they're called, peeing, the other ones are peeing their pants, because he found it in the middle of a 600-page case book. There's a, there's a, it was longer than 600 pages, let me assure you. Um, there's <laughs> right. a discussion of something called sovereign immunity, the idea that you can't sue a state directly. You can only sue an individual who works for the state. It comes kind of from the 11th Amendment, but it's really, um, unfortunately, some conservative justices who made up a whole bunch of doctrine around it to say that. And so I gave um, that answer. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please join me in thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.